Welcome to the clan! This is a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business. Leverage is what you're going to need in today's music industry. Your dreams and hopes of being a diamond in the rough and getting that record deal and having somebody completely develop you from nothing isn't going to happen anymore. You're going to have to show some business. You're going to have to show some some movement, that you have an audience, that that audience is interested in what you have to say. And that's the only way you're going to get the attention of the label, of the bigger money, of the management, of the booking agency, etc. It's why we call this the climb. C-L-I-M-B, Creating Leverage in the Music Business. And that's a Baxter from my good friend and co-host, Mr. Brent Baxter. Brent's an award-winning hit songwriter with cuts by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, Lady Antebellum, Joe Nichols, and more. And he helps songwriters like you turn pro by revealing how you can write like a pro, do business like a pro, and on the regular, Brent will get you in front of the pros, connecting you to the pros so that you can get your chance to make a relationship and have some upward mobility. You can find Brent very very easily at songwritingpro.com. Once again, that's songwritingpro.com. And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinnell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production. They're breaking artists digitally by identifying new fans through data. Listen, if you're an artist looking to increase your streams, blow up your video views, sell more live show tickets, and get discovered by new fans, TV, and music industry pros, then Daredevil Production can help. Daredevil's worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and Andy Griggs, just to name a few. You can find Johnny at DaredevilProduction.com. That is production, singular, no S, and there is no S because there is no other. Johnny D. How you doing, buddy? Man, I'm doing well. I am ready to get out the house. These little walks with Hazel are just not quite getting it done. It's been rainy. I've been able to take long walks, and that's been my relief. And I'm ready to get out the house. But other than that, I'm good. Overall, we're good. Everybody's healthy. How you doing? It's good hanging in there, doing a lot of walking too, trying to, you know, not gain the Corona 15, as you say, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, it's, it's the last couple of days was bad. It's been bad. The ice cream and burger place down the street is an essential business. So that ice cream became essential and it's in the freezer. And by the end of the night, after I'm done working and my willpower is shot, hello, spoon, hello, ice cream. Oh, <laughs> good grief. All right. Well, listen, today we are going to go, we're going to go into some deep, dark psychological stuff. This is about social intelligence and psychological superpowers. That's a lot of polysyllabic words there. That is, right? Makes me sound smart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with, with everything that's going on, the impetus of this really isn't the virus in any way, actually. It just comes from seeing so many artists that have everything they need to become superstars. And remember, when I say artists, I mean songwriters, too. I consider that an art. So... Mm-hmm. They have everything they need to become successful, whatever that successful means to them, but they continue to fail, they continue to languish, and they're constantly getting their own way due to a lack of emotional intelligence, and we're going to dive into that a little bit. Very cool. Before we do, let's just take care of a little business. It's a digital world out there, now more than ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an important role for the physical media for today's independent musician. The independent musicians are definitely going to be able to be touring sooner than pros. By the way, another opportunity, side note. Mm -hmm. Digital royalty payments are so small that selling products like CD, vinyl, T-shirts, and gigs, the customizable hard drives, thumb drives, and stuff like that, that's going to be key to making the money to get gas in the tank, get the food in your stomach, get to the next town. That's right. You know, because for every CD you sell at a gig, you need about 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money. Now, that's a lot of streams. And hey, streams are great. Get them. Collect them. Get as many as you can. 
But you're metaphorically leaving money on the table when you don't have merch on the table. We believe it's important to get that merch in there because you know what? You can't sign a stream. You can't autograph a stream for a fan, right? Thankfully, our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your disc and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even T-shirts, and apparently even face shields for healthcare workers. They've been doing that lately, too. So big shout out to them for that. And you can find them online at discmakers.com. That is D-I-S-C makers.com. Or give them a call at 800-468-9353. That's 800-468-9353. Right on. And if you haven't done so, join the Climb community. This is an ever-growing, thriving community of songwriters, artists, musicians, they got questions. They find their answers there. They share successes. Share it in the right place now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talk about uh, you know music marketing, songwriting. There are songwriting connections being made. There are strategies being built on releasing singles and stuff like that. And it's a great resource to go. And what I love about it is, I mean, we set it up and we check in on the regular, but it's a lot of people helping people within there now. It's, it's taken on a life of its own. So... If you haven't joined the Climb community yet, please do so on Facebook. We let everybody in, but you have to ask to be let in. Also, subscribe to wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts so you get every single episode there is, and you can kind of pick and choose on those insomnia nights. Take 30 seconds, leave a rating and review. Hopefully it's a five-star, but leave an honest rating and review, and we'll read it on the air. We're trying to get to 200 here as quick as we can. That's our goal. We're setting the goals. We're asking the CTA, the call to action. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. And then finally, the best thing you can do really is, is if, you, uh, you know, we've got a lot of climbers out there been with us a long time. If you're finding value in this, tell somebody about it. Tell a bandmate. Tell another songwriter. Tell a friend. Tell a fellow artist. Let them know, hey, there's some good stuff here that you can do to get your mind right and make sure that we're moving forward in today's music industry and we're not tripping up on the way it used to work, right? That's right. And speaking of sharing some wins of the community, I'm just pulling up our weekly New Heights post where climbers in the climb community can post some of their wins under there. I just want to share a couple of these. Chris Scheller, I think. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Chris, but he said he just uploaded his next single to his distributor for release in May. That's awesome. So got you know a couple of folks commenting on that. Awesome. I hope that's late May, Chris, but good job. I love that it's out there in front. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Let's see. Paul DeMarco posted a video of my cover of Hole of the Moon by the Water Boys on Instagram, and the actual Water Boys liked my post. Johnny is right. Covers work. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't seen that one yet. The last one I saw him do was The Trooper, which, you know, he had me at The Trooper. I'm like, okay, (laughs) let's go. Bring it. Bring it, you limey. And he did it. And it was awesome. I was like, damn, boy, it's got skills. (laughs) Good for you, Paul. (laughs) And another one by a guy named Brent has a new single coming out by an artist named Wilkes on May 1st. Yeah. So coming up. Congratulations, Mr. Baxter. Yeah. This is your song. Okay, cool. Yeah, I know. Yeah, something I wrote with Wilkes a while back. Actually, Wilkes is a great artist. He was a former contestant on The Voice, and you can hear our interview with him on Climb Episode 110. So if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the Wilkesness, take a dip in Lake Wilkes, you can certainly do that on Episode 110. But good buddy, great artist, and so happy to have a song. It's called Jealous of the Night. And it's dropping on May 1st, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, that guy's got like a vulgar display of prowess. Yeah, he's pretty sick. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's so good. And I love that interview, too. I mean, he talks about how we had a, some very, very small part in maybe helping him a little bit in that direction and getting on The Voice, which was kind of cool because of some strategies that we talked about here. Yeah. And he was really, really nice to share that with everybody. So that's a really good interview, by the way. Nobody yeah. should do that. All right, let's get into this. Yes. Emotional intelligence. This is a skill. This is not your IQ. This is something you can build and train with practice. The subtle trick, though, is that improving your emotional intelligence has a lot more to do with what you do less of instead of more of. Oh, that's interesting. Right? People who don't have a whole lot of emotional intelligence tend to blame other people for their problems. They tend to trap themselves in cycles of stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. They self-sabotage as soon as they start to make progress. And I mean, this past year, there's been far too many percentage-wise of artists that are gifted and have this amazing thing going on that certainly got me in touch with them and got us working together. And it went sideways. And it was because of this, because of emotional intelligence, Hmm. not because of anything else. And the more you become aware of this emotional intelligence, the more you really start to understand that this is the way the world works. This is largely why people fail everywhere. That's interesting. I've always thought of emotional intelligence or EQ versus IQ, EQ being how you relate to other people. I guess the blaming Emotional thing. quotient. Yeah, emotional okay. quotient versus emotional intelligence. But go on. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, EQ. It had to do more like how insightful you are with other people, what's going on with them, relating well to others, that sort of thing, which is interesting because versus I hadn't thought of it before being the self-sabotage stuff, the stress and anxiety and, and that kind of stuff. So that's just kind of interesting. It's always thought of it as a kind of a different thing where maybe we're just focusing on a portion of it. but It is. And you know what? This and they blur. They overlap to be sure. Mm-hmm. And there is certain ways of processing stuff, but EQ is more of where they overlap is it's being able to deal with other people, right? Like mm-hmm. if you can understand and relate to somebody better and, and also understand the bigger picture on emotional quotient, right? Like don't take the marshmallows right away. Play the long game, not the short game kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's where it's different than this. But it's my experience that most people really don't lack the capacity for emotional intelligence. I think a lot of people already have a high degree of emotional intelligence, but they're held back from using this by simple bad habits mm-hmm. that get in the way. And if you'd like to improve your emotional intelligence, and therefore, in my opinion, if you want to vastly improve the possibility for success, whatever that means to you, then you're going to need to identify these habits in your own life and be able to work to eliminate them. And then you're going to see that you just open the gateway for the emotional intelligence to come right in behind you. So step one here, now criticizing others. It's an unconscious defense mechanism when we do that. It's aimed at alleviating our own insecurities. We're all critical sometimes, and that's not a bad thing. I'm, I wish more people would be critical in today's world mm-hmm. and not eat what's being spoon-fed to them. To think carefully and critically about the world around us is certainly a vital skill, and it helps us navigate the world and relationships here in an objective way. But if you do it too much, if you're in the habit of criticizing others then it's easy to get into that habit because now it becomes something more than I'm trying to help somebody else. It becomes, it makes me feel good. Yeah. I mean, there's critical thinking, which is a good thing, which is discerning good from bad, truth from error, that sort of thing. But criticizing other people, being critical of other people, that there's, you know, constructive criticism, but then there's 
the defense mechanism. You know, the best defense is a good offense. As soon as, you know, you bring up something to me that I don't enjoy, maybe something that's a truth about me or something I need to work on, as soon as I can call you a jerk for bringing it up, now all of a sudden we're talking about why or whether or not you're a jerk. And we're not talking about whether or not what you said was true. <laughs> you know, yeah. is that sort of thing? And other artists, too. I mean, like, how many times do you hear writers do this all the time and other artists do this all the time where they'll look down their nose and be critical of another artist, right? Mm -hmm. There has to be some humility in there. I've said this before. I'm not a fan of Britney Spears, but you can't argue that those songs are really well done. Oh, they are. And that the production is immaculate, but sitting there saying, well, that's trite and blah, 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 all those things can be true, but... What's the point in criticizing them now? You're just trying to feed your own ego. Well, I find that when I criticize, I reinforce pre-existing beliefs. And when I seek to learn and don't criticize, we go, what a value is there? You know, I don't learn when I criticize. I don't grow when I criticize. I just grow more rigid yeah. and more set in my ways when I criticize because I'm reinforcing something that I already believe. And therefore, it's hard to hang on to criticism and be open to new ideas at the same time. And here's why. When you point out to yourself that someone else is dumb, then you're also implying that you're smart. And that feels good. Yeah. When you criticize someone else for being naive, what you're really doing is telling yourself that you're sophisticated. And that feels good, right? Yeah. When you silently chuckle to yourself about how terrible someone's fashion sense is or how stupid their writing is or how shallow into the gene pool the music is, right? A big 80s rock fan here. I mean, this music didn't change the world, right? This, <laughs> this isn't an epic Michael Jackson Man in the Mirror songs, but it still is good and it still made me feel something and I loved it. But when you chuckle to yourself about how terrible someone else's art is, you're telling yourself how refined your own taste is and that feels good. And by the way, you become like the Regina George from Mean Girls, right? Like... <laughs> If you've ever seen that movie. Um, I have not, but, you know. It's a good movie. you got to watch that, actually. Okay. <laughs> really funny. Helpful criticism is about making the world better. Unhelpful criticism is about making yourself feel better. If it temporarily makes you feel good, it usually makes you feel worse about yourself in the long term because it's vapid, right? It's false. But emotionally intelligent and self-aware people have a psychological superpower that they understand that criticizing others is a primitive defense mechanism and there's far more productive ways of dealing with our anxieties and our insecurities. And they recognize them and they're aware that they're anxieties and securities, which we all have. Mm -hmm. And so the opposite becomes true. As artists, we're trying to be vulnerable. And the better artists are better at being vulnerable. And the people who are not so good at being vulnerable are scared to death of being judged. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fair? There's a movie from this, was it Dating Tad Hamilton? It's a cookie cutter movie. It's kind of funny. It's got Josh... Dumel? Dumel in it, yeah. Haven't seen it either, but that kid from the <laughs> 70s show, right? Uh, no, no, no. He's not from the 70s show. He's... No, um, I know Josh Dumel, but I mean, isn't one of the other kids... Yeah, 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 yeah. Toby, Toby, uh, something or another. Yeah, he came Topher from the 70s show. Topher Grace, there you go. Yeah. I know more about this movie and I've not seen it, but anyway. <laughs> There's a line in there where he's like, you got seven smiles. It's the romantic moment, right? You've got a smile when you think someone's an idiot and then you got another smile when you really think someone's an idiot, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I relate to that in this because when you recognize the trait in yourself where you're actually moving or saying something and it's self-serving, you're not actually trying to help the other person, you're trying to serve yourself, then you begin to recognize it in other people. And that's when they're criticizing you and you realize that 
okay, right off the bat, I know this is disingenuous. Now, whether or not it's true is another story and another fact, and two things can be true at the same time. This person could be a jerk. And also, they could be right. But it doesn't make us feel as vulnerable. It makes us feel a little stronger when you're able to just recognize when somebody's trying to pee into your Cheerios and convince you that it's milk. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get over on you, and it's all about them and not about you. And then it makes you a little... Puts less weight on it, okay? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think with a little less weight in situations like that, you're able to make an honest decision as opposed to retreating and being defensive and feeling attacked. Mm-hmm. Without knowing people are constantly critical of others, they're just trying to alleviate their own insecurities. It also formulates itself in the form of a know-it-all. It manifests itself in the form of a know-it-all. A know-it-all is a person who knows everything except for how annoying they are. <laughs> I have a very close relationship with a dear, dear friend who is this kind of a person. And it has constantly gotten in this musician, he's a gifted musician, and Mm -hmm. constantly gotten in his way, gotten him fired off of these gigs and that gigs because he loves to talk about what he knows Mm -hmm. and therefore implying what they don't know, Mm -hmm. right? And it's better to hide your intelligence. Think Goldie Hawn. The genius of everybody thinks I'm a dumb blonde, and then she owns half of Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> we've done episodes on this before, Brent. How to be the dumbest guy in the room, I think, is mm-hmm. one of those titles. And yeah. it's better to hide your intelligence. People don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be told why they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And even if you're right, they don't want to mirror reflecting their own inadequacy. Yeah. The surefire way to lose your job is to try to upstage the boss. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. There's another relationship I have with like a very, very well-known, very popular studio musician whose career started out this way. Insanely gifted, Mm -hmm. but just couldn't keep his mouth shut in the studio. And then he figured that out over time. And he's got a lot more work now than he did 15 years ago because he realized that this is not the time. This is not the place. you got to come in with a grateful heart and an open mind. And it's not about how smart you are. People don't care how smart you are. When you let other people shine and have the spotlight, that makes them feel important. Mm -hmm. So here's a psychological superpower. When you are very actively aware of this and you let people shine and you make a point to even go out of your way to give the props and the high fives, it's uh, something that I'm very proud of that we do in Daredevil, that spotlight makes them feel important and they connect that importance with being around you. Mm. Right? They go Mm -hmm. farther for you. They want to work for you. Team building is part of this emotional intelligence. And you want to empower people with that spotlight rather than disempower them, whether knock them down by criticizing them under the guise of the false truth of I'm trying to help them when really you're trying to help yourself. Right? Yeah. This is deep stuff, Johnny. I'll have to take another sip of coffee. Yeah, I mean, have another cup of coffee. (laughs) Criticism of others is a waste of time and its energy. It's not investing in improving yourself and the world around you. Mm -hmm. we got to be careful of that. Number two, worrying about the future. we got a lot of that going on right now. Oh, no, there's no worrying about that because we have no future, Johnny. (laughs) There you go. No use in worrying about it. (laughs) Exactly. We've got six weeks left tops, so don't worry about it. Well, I want (laughs) to dig into this. I mean, worrying about the future, it means living in denial about the fundamentally uncertain nature of life, right? Mm -hmm. As humans, we crave order and certainty. And 
we're wired up that way. Our ancestors in the cave times lived longer if they were worried about what happened in the future, right? Yeah. It's a very primal system one level of thinking, but now it's a little different and we can be focusing on deeper things. We're biologically motivated to reduce uncertainty, but there's a difference between taking reasonable steps to reduce uncertainty, like wearing a helmet when you ride a motorcycle, Mm -hmm. or not riding a motorcycle, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. Or being so terrified by uncertainty that we delude ourselves into believing that we can eliminate it altogether. Mm -hmm. And chronic warriors do this, and I believe, too, that a lot of sickness comes from this. Oh, yeah. From constant worrying, like cancer, like really bad health issues. Worrying does not help this situation at all. Right. I mean, it literally does take a physical toll on you. Yeah. And constant worriers are so afraid of uncertainty and so unwilling to live with it that they get into a protection racket within themselves and they think that they can make the future less uncertain by thinking about it constantly. Chronic worries live under the illusion that thinking is always problem solving and that planning always leads to greater levels of preparedness, but neither of those are certainly absolutely true. Just because you're thinking about a problem doesn't mean you're thinking about it productively. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the survivorship bias and the story of the B-52s and all these bright minds in World War II with the B-52 bombers. When you would go out as a B-52 pilot, they were like flying targets. They had the payload and the bombs and everything like that, but you had a 50-50 chance of coming home. And there was so much thought put into how can we improve this, but you can't just build a flying tank because it won't take off. (laughs) Right. You can't make bulletproof everywhere or it'll be too heavy. And so the natural thing that they did, the planes that came back had all these bullet holes. So they were going to reinforce those areas. So there's a lot of thought put into that, a lot of action that was taking place, a lot of budgets were spent. And then they brought in a think tank person who said, well, this isn't right. Uh And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, well, this is where the bullet holes are. We're plugging up where those are hit. He goes, yeah, but those planes returned. So they can clearly fly with those bullet holes. Uh The damage right there isn't affecting these men's lives. What we need to be thinking about is the planes that didn't come home, where were they hit? And let's put some extra reinforcement there. So again, a whole lot of thought, not a whole lot of productivity. Just because you're planning and running through countless hypothetical future scenarios doesn't mean you're any better equipped to handle them, no matter how smart you are. You're just making yourself feel more prepared, right? I got to share this with you. I'm into this book right now. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. This is negotiating as if your life depended on it. So this is about negotiation, about psychology, about getting other people to perform for you, understanding, communicating better, really getting to the bottom of stuff. And I want to read to you guys just the first, it's about four minutes here, but it's just the first pages of the book because it's absolutely fascinating. But it's a David and Goliath kind of a thing. And I want you to get out of this what I got out of this. So chapter one, the new rules. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I was intimidated. I spent more than two decades in the FBI, including 15 years negotiating hostage situations from New York to the Philippines and the Middle East, and I was on top of my game. At any given time, there are 10,000 FBI agents in the Bureau, but only one lead international kidnapping negotiator. That was me. But I'd never experienced a hostage situation so tense, so personal. We've got your son, Voss. Give us $1 million or he dies. Pause. Blink. Mindfully urge the heart rate back to normal. Sure, I've been in these types of situations before, tons of them. Money for lives, but not like this. Not with my son on the line. Not one million dollars. And not against people with fancy degrees and a lifetime of negotiating experience and expertise. You see, the people across the table, my negotiating counterparts, were Harvard Law School negotiating professors. <laughs> I'd come to Harvard to take a short executive negotiating course to see if I could learn something from the business world's approach. It was supposed to be quiet and calm, a little professional development for an FBI guy trying to widen his horizons. But when Robert Mnookin, the director of Harvard Negotiation Research Project, learned I was on campus, he invited me to his office for a cup of coffee. Just a chat, he said. I was honored and scared. Mnookin is an impressive guy whom I'd followed for years. Not only is he a Harvard Law professor, he's also one of the big shots of the conflict resolution field and the author of Bargaining with the Devil, When to Negotiate, When to Fight. To be honest, it felt unfair that Mnookin wanted me, a former Kansas City beat cop, to debate negotiation with him. But then it got worse. Just after Mnookin and I sat down, the door opened, and another Harvard professor walked in. It was Gabriella Bloom, a specialist in international negotiations, armed conflict, and counterterrorism who'd spent eight years as a negotiator for the Israeli National Security Council and the Israeli Defense Forces, the tough-as-nails IDF. On cue, Mnookin's secretary arrived and put a tape recorder on the table. Mnookin and Bloom smiled at me. I've been tricked. We've got your son, Voss. Give us a million dollars or he dies. Manukin said, smiling, I'm the kidnapper. What are you going to do? I experienced a flash of panic, but that was to be expected. It never changes. Even after two decades negotiating for human lives, you still feel fear, even in a role-playing situation. I calmed myself down. Sure, I was a street cop turned FBI playing against the real heavyweights here, and I wasn't a genius. But I was in this room for a reason. 
Over the years, I had picked up skills, tactics, and a whole approach to human interaction that had not just helped me save lives, as I recognize now looking back. I had also begun to transform my own life. My years of negotiating had infused everything from how I dealt with customer service reps to my parenting style. Come on, get me the money or I'll cut your son's throat right now, Manukin said. Testy. I gave him a long, slow stare, and then I smiled. How am I supposed to do that? Manukin paused. His expression had a touch of amused pity in it, like a dog when the cat it's been chasing turns around and tries to chase it back. It was as if we were playing different games with different rules. Manukin regained his composure and eyed me with an arched brows as if to remind me that we're still playing. So you're okay with me killing your son, Mr. Boss? I'm sorry, Robert. How do I know he's even alive? I said, using an apology and his first name, seeding more warmth into the interaction in order to complicate his gambit to bulldoze me. I really am sorry, but how can I get you any money right now, much less $1 million, if I don't even know he's alive? It was quite a sight to see such a brilliant man flustered by what must have seemed unsophisticated foolishness. On the contrary, though, my move was anything but foolish. I was employing what had become one of the FBI's most potent negotiating tools, the open-ended question. Today, after some years evolving these tactics for the private sector in my consultancy, the Black Swan Group, we call this tactic calibrated questions, queries that the other side can respond to but that have no fixed answers. It buys you time. It gives your counterpart the illusion of control. They are the one with the answers and the power, after all, and it does all that without giving them any idea of how constrained they are by it. Manukin predictably started fumbling because the frame of the conversation had shifted from how I'd respond to the threat of my son's murder to how the professor would deal with the logistical issues involved in getting the money. How would he solve my problems? To every threat and demand he made, I continued to ask how I was supposed to pay him and how was I supposed to know my son was still alive. After we'd been doing that for three minutes, Gabriella Bloom interjected. Don't let him do that to you, she said to Manukin. Well, you try, he said, throwing his hands in the air. Bloom dove in. She was tougher from her years in the Middle East, but she was still doing the bulldozer angle, and all she got were my same questions. Manukin rejoined the session, but he got nowhere either. His face started to get red with frustration. I could tell the irritation was making it hard to think. Okay, okay, Bob, that's all, I said, putting him out of his misery. He nodded. My son would live to see another day. Fine, he said. I suppose the FBI might have something to teach us. I'd done more than just hold my own against two Harvard distinguished leaders. I had taken the best of the best and come out on top. But was it just a fluke? For more than three decades, Harvard had been the world epicenter of negotiating theory and practice. All I knew about the techniques we used at the FBI was that they worked. In 20 years I spent at the Bureau, we designed a system that had successfully resolved almost every kidnapping we applied it to, but we didn't have grand theories. Our techniques were the products of experiential learning. They were developed by agents in the field negotiating through crisis and sharing stories of what succeeded and what failed. It was an interrogative process, not an intellectual one, as we refined the tools we used day after day. And it was urgent. Our tools had to work, because if they didn't, somebody died. Wow, that's cool. Boom. First of all, isn't that just a riveting first couple pages? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, that's really good. 
he goes so deep into the psychology behind what happens and how other people think and how you can communicate. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Harvard approach is based on what they think is going to happen, right, from all this yeah. careful planning. But the FBI approach really embraces the fact that they realize that it's always uncertain. Mm-hmm. It's never going to go the way that you planned it. Worry gives you the illusion of uncertainty, but in the end, all it does is make you more fragile. Emotionally intelligent people understand that life is inherently uncertain, and they understand that it's better to face up to this reality clear-eyed than to live in denial about it, right? What's the name of this book again? The book is Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It by Chris Voss. Chris Voss is former boss, by the way, is the lead role character that was portrayed in Waco, if you look on Netflix. It's a miniseries, like five episodes, I think, or six episodes, and it's compelling Hmm. to watch. Same kind of a thing. Like, how do you negotiate logically, which is where Harvard is coming from, and the planning is logical, and it all has to create a win-win situation, but how do you negotiate logically with somebody who thinks he's a messiah, like David Koresh? Yeah. In the Branch Davidians, right? It's a different thing. And there's psychology and somebody has to be heard and they have to feel that they've been heard. And these are the skills we all need to get better at here, right? When you stop beating yourself down with all the stress and anxiety that comes with chronic worry, you'll be surprised at how much energy and enthusiasm returns to your life, mm-hmm. to your art, whether you're a songwriter, whether you're an artist. If all you're worrying about now is what tomorrow's going to look like, You're not being an artist. Start writing about it. When you stop insisting the world act the way that you want it to tomorrow, it becomes easier to work with the world that you've got today because you're not focusing on what you don't have. Mm -hmm. Focusing on what you do have. How many times have we gone down that road? Yeah, but does this make possible? It's funny. I was listening to Gary Vaynerchuk podcast this morning on my walk with Hazel, and he's kind of dogging on five-year plans. He's not big on that. He kind of tries to make the best choice he can make today or whatever. And I'm sure he does have long-term goals or whatever, which he does. He wants to buy the Jets. But as far as your five-year plan it out planning, he's like, yeah, you had your five-year plans. And then some lady ate a bat in China. Where are your five-year plans now? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, there you go. The whole world changed because, you know, yeah. There you go. There you go. And sometimes I feel like five-year plans are this sort of get out of jail free clause for people to give up doing what they really love to do. Mm -hmm. Certainly nobody said, I got a five-year plan and I'm just going to go work this desk job forever. (laughs) Right, yeah. Right, because that's my plan. I feel like five-year plans are only attached to what we really love to do, Mm -hmm. right? They're not attached to living the dichotomy. No, no, not at all. So number three here, brooding on the past, brooding on past mistakes. It's also a misguided attempt at control. And I wanted to touch on this because I think right now, a lot of people don't feel like they're in control. Mm-hmm. And we're not. Yeah. We're not. But what are you going to do? You know? Just like we crave order and certainty as human beings, we also crave control. We're obsessed with the idea that with enough effort and perseverance, we can do or achieve anything. And while that's true, most people who get stuck sort of brooding on past mistakes and failures, they don't actually believe they can change the past. Right. But it gives them an illusion of control, even if it's fleeting and even if it's temporary, it feels good, Hmm. right? If you've ever been violated, beat up, attacked, robbed, raped, anybody where you just blatantly got screwed mentally or whatever, 
it sets you back, Mm -hmm. right? It gives you pause. It takes your breath away. There's no words that can describe it accurately, but then we continue to play it over and over and over and obsess over what we've could have done. And I think there's an amount of that that is healthy and necessary Mm -hmm. to learn and to change behaviors, but it's taking away from what should be happening. I'm going to get to that in a second. When you've done something bad or made a mistake in the past, you naturally feel guilt and regret. And the people who brood too much develop an unconscious habit of constantly replaying those mistakes because it gives them a feeling of control and the control distracts them from the feeling of being helpless. And when it comes to past mistakes, that's the only word to describe it as helpless. There's nothing you can do about past mistakes except learn from them, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So no amount of analysis is going to change what happened. By the way, that means that, you know, you're powerless and your helplessness about that past mistake is inevitable. But if you fixate on that, it means you're not working on what you should be working on, which is the now. And the now is the only thing that can change your future as an artist, as a songwriter. If you were violated and your heart was broken, we've talked about this fault versus Mm -hmm. responsibility. That wasn't your fault, but you have the responsibility to fix that broken heart and to move past the trauma, Right. or you're not going to change your future. And if you're completely obsessing about the past and you slip into like a victimhood mentality, even though you were in fact a victim, Mm -hmm. you're not moving forward. Who's the victim of coronavirus? Everybody right now. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody. We have to not be focused on this. We have to be working right now towards what's going to happen when this ban lifts and where are we going to land and how are we going to land. Some of us are going to have to pivot. You're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to do something different Mm -hmm. than what you were doing before. You might have a job to come back to, a day job. Some people might come out of this, Brent. It just occurs to me with a story of that's the best thing that ever happened. I hate that it happened, but (laughs) now I didn't have anything left to lose. So I had to focus on being an artist and look what happened. Yeah. It's all I had, you know? I mean, it's the Pat Flynn thing of if you follow Pat Flynn, he has a smart passive income podcast and he does books and all this stuff. But his inciting event was he got let go at his architecture job. And then that prompted him to pivot into something that was unknown, and now he's perfectly happy making a major bank, helping entrepreneurs and stuff. And hey, one of the best things that happened to me was getting let go from Blue Water Music. I had the Alan Jackson cut, and you know I'd done the math on like it goes platinum. Here's what I can make. Well, I, you don't quit your day job over that, but you know let's keep this job I'm working at at least part time or whatever. And then they're like, yeah, we're gonna let you go. I was like, I guess I'll go get a publishing deal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. One of the best things that happened to me was the financial meltdown in 2008. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a serious mortgage company going, right? Mm-hmm. I'd never done this before. I had months where I made $30,000, dollars $50,000 in a month, mm-hmm. personally. Not the gross of the business, my take. Yeah. And it all went away. And it was a gift. It was really a gift because after that and all the other crap that happened, I was just, there's always going to be chaos. That's finally where I had it. Like adulting, what's that? There's always going to be chaos. Mm -hmm. So I might as well be doing what I want to do because I'm going to have this chaos in my adulting life with air quotes or my regular life. You don't want to be stuck in the past except for for what it is and including that there's going to be moments of feeling helpless and don't revisit it too much. It's going to distract you. Take the present instead of dwelling on the past. Do something useful right now, no matter how small, and resist the temptation to go back into that bad habit of replaying another scene from your past. There's a great little 
blog I read about using these tricks, you'll never procrastinate again. And one of them was just do one small thing. The hardest thing about procrastination is starting. It's not the actual job. Right. Right. The hardest thing about writing is not writing. It's sitting down to write. Exactly. By the way, in the Never Split the Difference book, he talks about the psychological phenomenon that is we're far more likely to do extra work to get from 90% to 100% than we are to get from 45% to 55%, even though it's the same amount of growth. It's 10%. Mm. But it's so overwhelming at 45%, right? We don't see it. So write for four minutes if you're a songwriter. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself going back in the past, write for four minutes. Sit down and write for four minutes. That's all. And then you can be done. Just four minutes of your life. Read one page about marketing if you're an artist. Do one little thing, Mm -hmm. knowing that that's going to make it easier to swallow, that you're going to get something from it. The hardest part is starting. And I promise you, if you sit down and write for four minutes and you do that three days in a row, at some point, it's going to be inevitable that you're going to write for a lot longer because you just have to sit down, but it's easy to sit down for four minutes. It's hard to sit down and have to come up with a song. Well, that's what I do with my personal song title challenge. That's part of what makes that effective and not so overwhelming. It's like, okay, this whole thing takes about 15 minutes. There you go. But then there are times where it ends up going longer because I find something and I'm like, oh, here, I didn't know this thing was here. And I uncover a rock and there's a piece of gold under there and I go after it and I'm excited. But if I were to sit down that day going, I'm going to write for a hour, two hours or whatever by myself, just woodshedding. That's kind of overwhelming. But then just 10 minutes, 10 minutes. If it doesn't work, I'm done in 10 minutes. Yeah. Not nearly as intimidating. Yeah. Go walk for five minutes. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, I mean, Kim's got me up. I'm walking three miles a day now with her. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for some people. And thank God. Oh, yeah. I need to read this book called Atomic Habits. We probably talked about it on here before. But, you know, it's talking about the gym. It could be put on your running shoes. Or your walking shoes. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's your habit. Yep. Or put on your shoes, walk out the front door. And really, the first week, if you just walk out the front door and walk right back in, that's fine. Yeah. But eventually, you're going to feel stupid, and you'll be like, okay, I'll just go out to the fence. <laughs> I'll walk a little bit now. I'll yeah. walk a little bit. Because you just feel so ridiculous, right? That sort of thing. And it builds and it grows. Yeah. Yeah. So the final thing here, guys, is just maintaining unrealistic expectations. It's a misguided attempt to control... Other people and also to self-sabotage, I think. Brooding about the past is an attempt to control the past and how we feel about it. Maintaining unrealistic expectations is a subtle way to control other people and also to give you an out. Mm -hmm. Like the five-year plan, in other words, might be unrealistic, especially in Nashville. This is a 10-year town. Oh, yeah. So how does a five-year plan work in a 10-year town if you don't have that information? My son, Ozzy, he's a dreamer and, and he's not the only one. But anyway, (laughs) so he'll have these big grand notions of what his birthday party is going to be or what this thing is going to be. And he just builds it up so much in his mind that when it ends up being good, instead of blow your mind amazing that no one's ever had before, he can get really disappointed and really shot down by it. Yeah. He just builds it up so much in his mind. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be all this and all that. And we're going to put on a play. I'm going to put on a play with my brothers and sisters. I'm like, have you met your brothers and sisters? (laughs) That is probably not going to go according to plan. (laughs) Which brothers and sisters are these? (laughs) Yeah, you got to get some more brothers and sisters because these aren't going to go the way you want it to go for so many reasons. And then he gets really frustrated and stuff. Instead of just accepting what is and go with what is and what we can get done, he'll let the perfect be the enemy of the good and can get really frustrated. And as artists, if we're anything, we're dreamers. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, if you, you're spending time crafting stories in your head about what other people should do mm-hmm. when they come into contact with you and when they inevitably fail to live up to those standards, like Ozzy's brothers and sisters to Ozzy's mm-hmm. idea of a play, then you reflexively, just out of reflex, you're comparing reality to those expectations and you feel frustrated and disappointed. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, expectations. I've heard this cool story about this dad that would work all day and he'd come home and he'd just want to chill and decompress for a little bit, right? But yeah. his wife's been home with the kids all day and the kids are ready to see him. The wife is ready to not see the kids. And and then they're on him and he's just frustrated because he's more wound up than when he left the office until he realized, oh, okay, well, I'm disappointed and I'm frustrated because reality is not meeting my expectation. I need to adjust my expectation and just realize... I'm not going to get an hour of chill time when I get home. I'm going to get an hour of family time, and then I'll be able to chill later. And just adjusting the expectation yeah. didn't change the reality, but it totally changed his attitude. He's like, okay, then I was present because I wasn't disappointed anymore because I realized the reality, and I adjusted my expectations accordingly, and then the whole night goes better, and he's in a much better mood. There you go. When I was married, we were doing some counseling, and that was one of the things that we created was a contract where she was frustrated with me because the first thing she wanted to do when I came home was to talk and reconnect Mm -hmm. and talk about her day. And I wanted to go chill out and just go right into the studio and just decompress because I'd been doing mortgages all day, something I didn't really like. Mm -hmm. And first of all, we realized that, and then I made the pivot to say, okay, so for 40 minutes, I'm going to come home and I'm going to reconnect with you. But then my problem was when I'm in the studio, that's my man cave. And you can come in and hang, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times there'd be musicians in there and stuff like that. It was not a forbidden place for my wife at the time, but this is not where we're going to talk about your day. Mm -hmm. Unless the house is burning down, come and hang, come and hang out, have a cocktail, have a beer, sit down, interact with these other musicians, talk to me, we're doing this thing here, but this isn't serious talk time or this isn't the time where you need to try to communicate something to me and feel disappointed that I'm not receiving that information. Mm -hmm. When I made that pivot, when I made that change, they switched those expectations, all of a sudden life was good. You know, and Mm -hmm. she felt heard and she felt more satisfied emotionally in the relationship. And so did I. And I was happy that I could do that and learn that. I think sometimes we put unrealistic expectations on other people, whether it's a new publishing relationship or I've talked before about an artist friend who met Tony Brown that one time and Tony was just polite to him. And then Mm -hmm. for years after that, he was bitter that Tony wouldn't take his call. And dude, you met him for five minutes, man. He was polite and maybe misspoke. Hey, come by the office sometime. Give me a call. We'll talk. That's not what it is. Yeah. So unrealistic expectations had him in such a negative space for so long. It was bad. So you can't craft those stories, right? And you can't expect other people to do things for you until that energy is coming to you, right? Otherwise, if you do that, it's really easy to say, well, Tony Brown said that he liked me and that I should call him up and now he's not going to take my call. So that's why I'm not an artist. Right, yeah. You know? Because people are unreliable. They don't do what they'll say. Exactly. And that was a conversation. Yeah, the people don't do what they say in this town. Yeah, those people that are artists and successful that you've heard of, they just happen to find the people that always did what they said, or you think they're swimming in the same pool that you are. Yeah. Yeah. 
It happened to them, too. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> you, know? you can't control other people, even if it's for the better, not nearly as much as you would like to. And right. what you're going to try to do if you put unrealistic expectations is create a constant vicious cycle of sky-high hopes and grave disappointments and frustrations. I think about how people deal with addicts. If you don't understand how to deal with an addict, it can wreck your life, too. Mm, for sure, yeah. You can do everything you can to try to help them at the end until they help themselves. You need to realize that that's a bag full of vipers. And if you stick your hand in there, you're going to get bit. And so you've got to wear leather gloves and understand what the probable outcome is going to be and then be there to help them and cheer them on when they're ready to make a change. Just to wrap this up real quick, eventually, if you're trying to control other people like band members, maybe other songwriters you're trying to get co-writes with and stuff like that, then they're going to come to resent you if they feel like you're doing this because are you doing it for you to make yourself feel better? Mm -hmm. And you're lying to yourself, telling yourself that you're trying to help them when it's really for you. So I think we got to address that. The solution here is you just have to let go of the expectation. Stop creating stories about what you want for other people and for yourself and what's going to happen to you. And you have to take it one hit at a time and just be prepared for the present. To be in the present with them for the person that they are right now mm-hmm. and be prepared to be in the present with yourself on where you are in your artist journey, on your songwriter journey. Validate their current struggles instead of daydreaming about future successes. Validate your current struggles and also daydream about your future successes. But it's always good to look in the rearview mirror a little bit sometimes and be like, man, as hard as it was this year, I still came farther. I'm farther along than I was this time last year. You know, Mm -hmm. it's good to know that even if you went only two inches ahead, you went two inches ahead, even though you haven't made it into the end zone yet. If we just focus on not being in the end zone, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. And setting boundaries on the behavior, especially of others, instead of wishing for perfection. Meet them where they are instead of where you want them to be and meet yourself where you are instead of where you want to be to be able to handle the in the now. Don't let unrealistic expectations like getting a record deal in a year or in a five-year plan or getting a cut with these three songs. And if I don't get a cut, then I'm not going to be a songwriter. Right. You're going to lose all belief in songwriting. These are unproductive things that feel smart, but they're not. That's really what I got to say about that. Things are changing, guys. We got to think for ourselves. You have to resist groupthink here. As a society, you really got to think for yourself. In times like this, you might have lost your job. You might have lost some normality, some normalcy in your life. Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to make sense of it. I promise you, it doesn't matter what political side of the aisle you're on. It's all compromised. All the thinking is compromised. The press is compromised. Yeah. 100%. Here's some facts. The press used to report the facts and you had to formulate an opinion. Now they report opinions and you have to decide if it ever even really happened. Academia, the college institutions are compromised. Here's proof. In 1964, the free speech movement was a massive, long-standing student protest in the University of Berkeley. Thousands of students in a massive act of civil disobedience insisted that the University of Berkeley administration lift the ban on campus of political activities to acknowledge their student rights to free speech and to academic freedom. How noble, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's the exact opposite that is happening. Guys, you got to think for yourselves. Trying to make any kind of sense out of this from any narrative on any side or in college with academics and with thinkers like that, these aren't things that are going to move you forward here. 
Watch a little less of the news and I think you'll be fine. <laughs> and then finally, stop caring about what others think about you. You're an artist. We want praise from people because we're artists. But if you really desperately need praise from people who are kicking themselves every 15 minutes, yeah. you're looking for the approval of people who despise themselves. What other people think of you is none of your business. Just go think and be an artist and live. Enjoy this moment. Figure out what you can do now to move yourself ahead. How can you pivot on your marketing? How can you pivot on your songwriting? And you're getting closer to your family now, whether you like it or not. You're getting closer to your spouse right now, whether you like it or not. You know, that, that has its ups and its downs. Work on the now. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the past. Just work on the now and everybody's going to be okay on this thing. Okay. Everybody's going to be okay, but we got to think about it the right way or it's going to get out of hand. So I got to say about that guys, the numbers that we're getting just real quick on digital ads that we are doing for our artists like Alora and for the Nash villains are astounding. It's so inexpensive mm -hmm. right now to be pushing paid traffic to get yourself in front of new eyeballs via digital means. And so let us help you with that. Give us a call or send an email at info at daredevilproduction.com. If you don't have the kind of budget where you can work with us, maybe a consultation will be better so you can get some good ideas and some guidance on what to do. We're here to help you. That's why we do this podcast. Email us at info at daredevilproduction.com and put consultation in the subject line until further notice. It's 33% off. It's a savings of $50 an hour. And we can really help get you going in the right way and make sure your content's good that you're going to push out and give you some good advice and some good guidance on the best way to get your art in front of new eyeballs. And then lastly, guys, get into the podcast community here on the climb community. You have to ask me, let in. We let everybody in play by the rules. This is a really good society to be into. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review, make it honest. Hopefully it's five star. And lastly, tell a friend about this. We're here to help. This podcast exists because we want you to win. So keep on climbing. And we'll see you at the top. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.